So good morning. Good morning. A few familiar faces in there. So I, I, uh, I should tell you, I've known Tia since 1990. I met her at Tassajara. And uh, I saw her about, I guess it was about two weeks ago at Blanche Hartman's 85th birthday party. <laughs> and she looked, uh, considering she looked great. Um, I don't you haven't seen her since her accident. I don't think you will be pretty, pretty soon. But at any rate, uh, she, was much, she was feeling much better. And so she came to the party and she stayed for the dinner and the, um, oh, I know, there were sort of skits and music and so on. And, uh, you know, one side of her face still feels kind of uh, numb, but, but you, know, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't know that anything had happened if you were to just look at her. If you, if you know her and you kind of stare at her face for a while, you, you'll see it. And it's continuing to get better, so maybe by the time you see her, it'll be, it'll be much better. Those kinds of things take take a while. And she still doesn't remember what happened. And lawyer that I am and personal injury lawyer that I was at one point, uh, people just sometimes don't ever remember. And it's probably a blessing that they don't remember. So she may never remember exactly what happened. And. I understand that Darlene was important to many of you, and she was certainly important to me. And if at some point you have questions about her, I'm happy to talk about her. But I have to tell you that I've spent a lot of time both talking and thinking and grieving and so on. And for me, it's kind of time to, to move on. So if you have something that you want to ask about, I'm happy to talk about it. But otherwise, I'm not, um, I, at least I'm very willing. Very, very long, but it, it, I don't have a need to talk about it. I, I began to feel like I was talking about death and dying all the time, because it wasn't just Darlene, it was also Blanche's, heart, Blanche's husband, Lou, and uh, an old, old friend from the Berkeley Zen Center, so yikes. So I asked Tia, I, wanted, I decided I wanted to talk about a passage that she really loves, and I thought maybe she talked about it already a lot, but apparently not. It's uh, in the scene, just the scene. I don't know if you're familiar with it, any of you. But <coughs> and I, what time are we supposed to be done with this part? No. Uh, no, as long as, as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fine. Billy Jeff. <laughs> but but usually noon, including usually questions. Okay, and then we have lunch, right? So if people want to ask questions or talk about something. I should tell you that Tia was my first. I knew her at Tassajara, and she helped me study something called the 30 Verses by Vasubandhu, which you may have taught about here. 
and if she doesn't didn't formally teach about it, then she it's, it underlies her teaching a lot. So we studied that together, and um, she was the first real Tenzo that I knew. She was the Tenzo. The you, you know that word. If I use a word that you don't know, let me know. My sense is that you follow these forms pretty much. I, I hesitated about the and unsurpassed because I, I hadn't asked. Mm. And I, I thought, I don't know what they chant. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, she was the, I'm sorry? What is the Tenzo? Tenzo was the chief cook. And in the summertime at Tassajara, which this was, they order all the food and they're like, you become an executive and you don't cook hardly at all and you deal with ordering for all the, both the get people cooking for the guests and for the students themselves and you, you figure out ways to use leftovers. <laughs> so you do well, every morning, you go in and see what's left and then figure out what to do with it because the students get the guests leftovers usually for dinner. But at any rate, it's the head cook, and there's a wonderful Dogen fascicle about it called um, the Tenzo Kyokun, or instructions to the Tenzo, but it's really sometimes translated how to cook your life. It's a wonderful piece, and it's, it's featured a lot in the movie about Dogen that you may have seen. I don't know if you saw it. It's called Zen. It's a wonderful movie, a little dramatic, a little hokey, but it's quite wonderful. At any rate, she was my first Tenzo, and I, I don't know what your experience of her is, but I'll tell you, she was very tough. <laughs> <laughs> she would not let us um, use an electric mixer to beat egg whites, mm. and we were cooking for like 100 people. That's a lot of egg white, or egg whipped cream. We had to do it by hand with a whisk. She's not a big fan of... Uh, machinery. So that was, uh, that was interesting. <laughs> anyway, it was, I learned a lot from her and she used to say uh, that she thought of the uh, kitchen as a zendo and that she wanted to bow whenever she went into the kitchen because she had learned so much there. And so did I. And she had on the altar, you know, the, the altar is kind of the Tenzo's territory, so you can put what you want on there. So she had put a very simple white bowl. It was basically a cereal bowl. But it, there, there used to be, there were a few, I don't think there are any left now, but there were a few. They're not that regular kind of heavy, heavy white restaurant china stuff, you know, with the, with the rim, they were, they were a little, they weren't delicate, but they were more graceful than that. So she had one of those on the altar, just an empty white bowl instead of a Buddha, that was what was on the bowl. It was, it was really, that was on the altar, that was very nice. I just figure here I am, I should tell you Tia stories. <laughs> <laughs> We're just about the same age. She's, she's six months younger than I am, so I get to tease her about that, because she's very senior to me at Zen Center. 
that's enough. Let me read you this passage. It's, uh, it's uh, from uh, something called the Inspired Utterances of the Buddha, Udana, chapter 1, number 10. And I, I don't even, I'm, I'm sure that's what it is, but I, I don't, and I don't remember where I got it, so it's in one of those sutra books, I'm sure. So I want to read the whole thing, but it's the end that I really want to talk about. Read Bahya, thus have I heard. At one time, the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jetta Grove at Anathapandika's monastery. At that time, Bahya of the bark cloth was living by the seashore at Supar, Suparaka. He was respected, revered, honored, venerated, and given homage, and was one who obtained the requisites of robes, alms, food, lodging, and medicine. That means that he was considered holy by people. He was somebody who was very, um, they felt that he was worth taking care of as a holy person. Now, while he was in seclusion, this reflection arose in Baya of the bark cloth. Am I one of those in the world who are arhats or who have entered the path to arhatship? Then Devata, who was a former blood relation of Baya of the bark cloth, understood that reflection in his mind. Being compassionate and wishing to benefit him, he approached Baya and said, You, Baya, are neither an arhat, nor have you entered the path to arhatship. You do not follow that practice, whereby you could be an arhat, or enter the path to arhatship. Then, in the world, including the devas, who are arhats, or have entered the path to arhatship, there is Baya in a far country, a town called Savati. There the Buddha now lives, who is the arhat, fully enlightened one. That Lord Baya is indeed an arhat, and he teaches Dhamma for the realization of arhatship. Then Baya of the bark cloth, profoundly stirred by the words of that Devata, then and there departed from Suparaka. Taking but one night to complete the journey, he went to Savati, where the Buddha was staying in the Jetta Grove at Anathapandika's monastery. At that time, a number of bhikkhus, monks, were walking up and down in the air. Then Baya approached those bhikkhus and asked, where is the Buddha now living, the fully enlightened one? We wish to see the fully enlightened one. The Buddha Baya has gone for alms food among the houses. Then Baya hurriedly left the Jetta Grove. Entering Savati, he saw the Buddha walking for alms food in Savati. The Buddha was pleasing, lovely to see, with calm senses and a tranquil mind, attained to perfect poise and calm, controlled, a perfected one, watchful, with restrained senses. On seeing the Buddha, Baya approached, fell down with his head at the Buddha's feet and said, teach me Dhamma, teach me Dhamma, so that it will be good for my good and happiness for a long time. Upon being spoken to thus, Buddha said to Baya of the bark cloth, it is an unsuitable time, Baya. We are going for alms food. A second time, Baya said to the Lord, It is difficult to know for certain, Reverend Sir, how long the Buddha will live or how long I shall live. Teach me Dhamma, teach me Dhamma, so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. Upon being spoken to thus, Buddha said to Baya of the bark cloth, It is an unsuitable time, Baya. We are going for alms food. A third time, Baya said to the Lord, it is difficult to know for certain, Reverend Sir, how long the Buddha will live or how long I shall live. Teach me Dhamma, teach me Dhamma, so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. So, you know, if you ask the Buddha three times, he kind of has to say yes. <laughs> Here in Baya, you should train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely what is seen. 
In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the senses will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized will be merely what is cognized. In this way you should train yourself by it. When baya in the seen is merely what is seen, in the cognized is merely what is cognized, then baya you will not be with that. When baya you are not with that, then baya you will not be in that. When baya you are not in that, then baya you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. Through this teaching, the mind of Baya was freed from suffering and the Buddha went away. In the seen, merely what is seen. In the heard, merely what is heard. In the senses, just what's sensed. In the cognized, just what's cognized. What would that be like? I just want to say a little, you know, that this is quite repetitive. For an early Buddha Sutra, it's not so bad, actually. But they did that because it helped to memorize them, and also, if you've read any, any fairy tales or anything, they just like it. I think they just like it. Or they did, at any rate. And, and by, uh, you know, he says, oh, do this, teach me, so, so that it'll be for my good and happiness. And am I an arhat? You know, it seems a little self-concerned. <laughs> but well, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are we doing here? You know, what's a way-seeking mind, after all? You, know, you can say it more elegantly. But there's a way in which our practice is to orient ourselves, align ourselves with the Dharma. We do want to be taught the Dharma, I think. What in the world are you doing here? So he's kind of, he's, he's saying it, it in a way you think, oh, cringing a little. But, but what's he really asking? You know, he's asking, is my practice useful? Is it relevant? What am I doing? Is this a, is this, is this a good idea? Am I following a path that is useful? I like that word. I don't like words like helpful because it sounds like pity or something. So useful. And you do have to be useful to yourself first. You know, if you don't do your homework, you're not very useful to anybody. So it has to start with this one. So that's how I understand him, that he's He's trying to figure out how to practice, what to do. At the, you know, at the time of the Buddha, there was like, uh, when I first took a class in the life of the Buddha, the teacher, Lida Barros, said that it was a time like the 60s. It was a time of lots of seeking. And there were lots and lots of religious teachers and so on. <coughs> so you could wonder, is this, is this, is this it? Is this it? Lots of students are like that. I, I wonder, I worry a little bit that it was too easy for me. I sort of started Zen and I started at Green Gulch and I practiced at Berkeley Zen Center. And I went off to Tassajara and I sometimes I think, I don't know, maybe I should have like, you know, struggled more. 
I struggled plenty, but not in terms of is this the right path. At any rate, I think it's a legitimate question and we can understand it this way. And um, I, I, I didn't go on and on about it. it. It ends with he dies and the Buddha has him buried as a fully realized monk because he says he completely got it. So he really wanted to know. And Buddha said, you should train yourself thus, in the seen, just the seen, in the herd, just the herd. And that's liberation. If you can set aside all that extra that we so often add, we cause ourselves and others suffering because of the extra, because right? of all our ideas about what we see and what we hear and what we think. You know, what we cognize. In other words, you know, we, we see something and first we just kind of see it in a shape or in a color or something like that and then our minds take it and label it and, and recognize it and name it. And that's hardwired. Our problem, of course, is that we, we is this a phrase that you know you're familiar with? We give it substance. At any rate, we, we make a thing out of it, we thingify, we make it a solid object. And then we create problems. We, as Blanche says, we start to believe in it. She says that what she has learned from practice is to stop believing in her stories. She doesn't believe. She has stories, but she doesn't believe in them so much anymore. So that's the cognized, in other words, when, we, when I look, I see a zagu over there, a bowing cloth. So, the first thing is maybe just, you know, cloth, brown, green, I don't know. And then my mind takes that and starts popping up ideas about it. Starting off with brown and green and fabric and Megan Collins made it for me and um, it's, I've had it for a chunk of time now, blah, blah, blah. I have all these ideas about it. And that's how it is. We have ideas about what we see, about what we cognize. We cog In some sense, all we ever cognize is our ideas. That's how, it, that's how we're hardwired. You know, there's a, there was a long, long time ago, there was an Oliver Sacks article in the New Yorker about a guy that was um, blind and it turned out he could have surgery and then he could see. And his fiance really wanted him to have the surgery, so he did. And, and he could see, but he couldn't cognize what he saw. So he could see a dog, and he could see it, but it wasn't a dog to him until he touched it. And then when he touched it, then he knew what it was. And the same, he could see stairs but he couldn't go up them, he couldn't understand them until he touched them with his, uh, with his cane. And then he could go on up the stairs. And that's how our minds, our minds work. It's, it's lightning fast, so you don't stop and think about it. But it, our minds organize the information that comes in and we, and we organize it out of what we already know. This is 
30 verses summarized, <laughs> perhaps irresponsibly. <laughs> but at any rate, we, 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 um, we organize the, the, our experience, our sense experience, according to the concepts that we already have. So you have to have the concept already in order to be able to label it. Not that you don't get new concepts because you have new experiences, but I think you kind of synthesize and then you incorporate this new stuff and then you, you keep on going. So each of, us, um, each of us sees our own concepts. We cognize our own ideas. And the problem is that we add on, we give them substance, we make them solid, we believe that they're permanent and that they are the only idea. And we each, we each see the Buddha on the altar. And the thing is that, of course, we each see a different angle and so on. But actually, we each see our idea of Buddha. And we, we cause ourselves trouble and other people trouble when we believe in it too much. We think that that's the idea. That's Buddha. I know what a Buddha is. That over there, and it's, it's got this hand. Uh, that's just your idea. And if we can remember that, we can cause much less suffering to ourselves or others. I was just thinking about, um, do you remember Elian Gonzalez from Cuba? The little, little boy? And people that said that he shouldn't go back to his dad. And, and the, um, I mean, it's true. I confess, I disagree <laughs> with those people. But how, how much, how much suffering? Lots of people in that process, I'm sure, caused. But how much suffering the people caused that didn't want to let him go back to his dad because of an idea that they had about Castro, about the Cuban system. And I was, I, I was trying to think about how I could argue with somebody that held those kinds of beliefs. And uh, if I could make a parallel that would sort of convince them that maybe this wasn't right. You know, like, well, if it were this way, would you still feel it? And I thought, no. And at any rate, my job, our job, is where am I holding on in a similar way? Where's my, where's my hatred and where's my fixed ideas and where's my holding on to my ideas? Do you ever, um, I noticed, I listen to um, Democracy Now, um, Pacific. And I think that Amy Goodman is telling me how it really is. <laughs> and I think that people on Fox TV or radio, whatever, are not telling the truth. And it just, it dawned on me a couple of years ago, oh, the way I feel about Amy Goodman, or Rachel Maddow probably, you know, the way I feel about those people are very much like what the people that listen to Fox News feel about, I, I don't want, I don't, <laughs> Glenn Beck or somebody, I don't know. <laughs> That's not a fair comment. I shouldn't. But at any rate, you understand what I'm saying, that it's really important to step back a little bit 
not that you shouldn't have ideas, but that's the problem is that we hold on to them so tight. And we, we add something extra, rather than it simply being an idea that I, that I have, it becomes an idea that I hold. <laughs> and I can't see, can't see. And I um, create, create um, difficulty. It's the uh, merely what is seen, merely what is heard, without all the ideas about it. And we, are, we have so many ideas about what we experience that we kind of kill it. I almost think of, you know, the dead parrot sketch? How many people know? How many people don't know the dead parrot sketch? Monty Python. Oh, oh my. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> but not everybody. Some people, a lot of people raise their hands, so I get to tell. I use this. I went back and looked at it on YouTube or something. Um, it's just about how dead it was that, that I think is a useful <laughs> reminder. It, it's John Cleese is the customer, and I think it's Eric Idle is the the proprietor of a pet shop. And John Cleese comes in and he says about this parrot I just bought, and he's got a a uh, like a cage, and there's a parrot lying on the bottom of it, uh, lying on its back, which parrots don't do, you know. And he says this parrot's dead. I says, no, no, it's just sleeping. <laughs> and of course, in Monty Python, they, they go back and forth, and John Cleese does his, you know, he gets, this is a shtick as he gets more and more upset. He starts out kind of looking like uh, somebody from, you know, Seville Road Banker or something, and then pretty soon he starts getting crazed. And pretty soon he's, he's crazed because Idol says, no, no, he's fine, he's just sleeping. And then he says, well, he, he uh, he was on his perch before, and, and Cleese said he was nailed on his perch. <laughs> and it gets to the point where um, Cleese has the parrot, which is you know as stiff as a board, and he's smacking it on the <laughs> This is a dead parrot. And finally he says that he calls it an extinct parrot, or an ex-parrot. <laughs> and that's, I, I like the image because it's dramatic and it's funny, but also that's what we do. We kill the parrot because we are so attached to our own ideas about it. So instead of just saying, you know, to ours, you don't, you know, you don't talk to yourself like this, but just, oh, that's a parrot. You know, it's it it's some some form of like, oh, I know what that over there is. That over there, separate from me, solid permanent event. That is a parrot over there, and aren't I great for noticing that's a parrot? This happens without your having, you know, this happens. That's 10 times, 100 million times faster than that. But that, this thing that, I find that image useful to help, my, help me remember not to kill it, not to slap so many labels on it that I can't even see it anymore. And could I just let the parrot be a parrot? What would that be like? What would that be like? So um, don't kill the uh, parrot or don't thingify the parrot.
want to leave some time for questions. So. Um, because we're so attached to our ideas, we do locate ourselves in them. This is, where is it? Um, when in the scene, just the scene, and so on. You will not be with that. You will not be in that. You will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. It won't be about me. It won't be about my idea of a parrot. It could just be a parrot. When I know that all I ever see is my idea of a parrot, that's the, that's the koan of it. But I just don't have to be so, um, so attached to it. I could simply see the parrot. I could just see Ralph and just see Sally. Let Ralph be Ralph and Sally be Sally. And let me be me, because I have a lot of ideas about how I should be. I don't know about you, I imagine you do too. You know, when you, when you think you're a good person and when you think you're not and when you feel defensive and all these things. All these ideas, often very negative ideas. I'm appalled when I talk to people in Doksa on how the kind of ideas that people have about themselves and how hard we are on ourselves. It's not useful. So stop it. <laughs> <laughs> but we locate a self in our experience. And then we, we grab onto it, and then we're off to the races. That's not a great metaphor, but anyway. So if we don't locate a self in our experience, if we don't locate a self at all, that'd be good. But not to be, the fact that, that I have an experience doesn't make it mine. I just have an experience. Can I let, I have a cramp in my foot, excuse me. Could, we, could I just let the experience be what it is without it having to be about me all the time? Could I let go of this burden of self that I carry around? What would it be like? What would it be like? It's kind of scary, I think, to imagine letting go of this burden of self that we carry around. We locate ourselves in our experience because it feels safer. Because if I don't know, and if it's not me, then what about my ego? What about me? It's, it's frightening. I had a, a wonderful sort of a sense experience at Tassajara once, um, years ago. I really viscerally got it that I was carrying around a sack of shit. And that, and that I didn't want to let it go because, and it was like right here in front of my, you know, the, the middle, the, the part of the body that feels kind of vulnerable. And I was carrying it around, I, that I was carrying it around and I didn't want to let it go because it was warm and it was protecting me and it was mine. It was familiar. And the thought of letting it go was very frightening. But 
you know, this was the kind of thing, this was, my practice was it used to be more interesting than it is now, I guess. It, you know, it wasn't something I saw with my mind's eye even, and it wasn't something I was telling myself, it was just, it was something I knew in my bones somehow. And I did let it go. And what a joy. I don't mean that I <laughs> I've completely let go of my ego or my sense of self. I'm sorry to say I have not done Sometimes I do it, though. Sometimes we all do it. But that time in the Zendo, I, you know, I knew this, and I just somehow let it go. And it was a feeling of great joy and liberation and lightness and so on. A little bit scary still, you know, because this, this is this part of your body, right in the middle of your of your body. You know, that's where you. I don't know, but so we often carry our fear there. That's why when we're afraid, you know, we cringe. We kind of protect that part of our body, the hara, basically. So to take away the protection there, but it was. It was uh, it was a very powerful experience of really I felt like I knew with my wisdom I knew um, what a burden I was carrying around and and what a burden we all carry around we don't always see it but it's it's there and what the Buddha is saying I believe is set it down. Set it down. Just be in your experience. You know the line from the Genjo Koan, uh, the, the myriad, when you carry yourself forward to experience the myriad dharmas that suffering, when you allow the myriad dharmas to come forth and experience themselves or a self, that's liberation. Saying the same thing, I think, to what Buddha is saying there. Don't be with that, don't be in that. Don't be here or there. Just, just be without. Don't set yourself down in there. What would it be like? It's a great question to ask yourself. What would it be like? So loosen it up. Those Traeger body workers ask that question. What would it be like if his shoulder were looser? So what would it be like? Just this is the end of suffering. So. It's five up, so do you have any questions or comments? Yeah? Well, not about the, the teaching specifically, mm -hmm. but I was wondering if you could share, it seemed like there seemed to be a gap in the story if you were a personal injury lawyer and then, oh. <laughs> then you walked into the Zen Center. What was in between? <laughs> I was a labor lawyer in between, but that's not really your question. <laughs> right. I was a union side labor lawyer. Side labor side. But, um, I don't know. I, I, uh, I just was more attracted to this. I got sick. I had Epstein-Barr syndrome. I uh, started going out to Green Gulch, but not sitting, just going and staying in the guest house and sometimes working and sometimes not, but resting. And um, I split up with the man I'd been living with, and I got involved in Al-Anon, which is mm -hmm. a spiritual program. And 
I was I got a brochure from Green Gulch and there was a weekend retreat. Um, and that was a very gentle introduction to Zen. And I went and heard myself say, you know, Friday night you go around the room and say what you're doing there. And I heard myself say, I thought it was time to begin. <laughs> I didn't know I thought that. You know, when you say something and you feel like, who said that? <laughs> and you got busted coming. Like and so um, I found out there was a Berkeley Zen Center very close to my house. So I started sitting the next week. And more and more, I just I was more and more drawn to to Zen practice. And then I took three months off in the summer of '89 and did a residential practice period at Green Gulch. And I never really went back. I did, but not for very long. So. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit more about what you were saying about losing your sense of self and going to your story? Because I have difficulty seeing that in a political context, particularly the one you mentioned about the left and the right. Because if you say, well, that's a story, where's the truth? Where's the, the reality? I mean, there's such a thing as war and peace, right? I can see it in a personal context, telling yourself stories about your family and friends, acquaintances, etc. But well, it isn't that you don't have ideas. Mm -hmm. Just don't hold on to them so much. Because we're so judgmental of those who don't share our ideas that we cause no end of suffering for ourselves or others. I was at a, a uh, there was like a peace vigil in a town near Vallejo, a town called Benicia, which is kind of an artist's colony or was. And, and so they would, on Thursday afternoons, a bunch of people would just stand with maybe signs and things. Well, there, that place, that park where they were, and the intersection where they were, was quite right across the street from the Veterans of Foreign Wars building. Mm -hmm. And so other people would stand with American flags and maybe with their uniforms or whatever and um, yell at the folks that were with the peace demonstration. And for the, I think for me, the first time, I've heard lots and lots of lectures about not hating or looking at the hate in myself when there's violence and my own violence and stuff like that. I mean, of course, yes, of course. But it never really got me somehow. But that day, standing there, there are two things I noticed. One is that we had people standing that I was standing with had um, insulting posters. They were funny. There was that nation cover of, of uh, George Bush looking like Alfred E. Newman. Uh. <laughs> it's funny to me, but they're not, it's not kind. At any rate, what I really got was I, reali I, I realized what it, uh, what it felt like to be hated because the people on the other side of the street hated me. They didn't know me, but they hated me. They would have hated what I stood for. You know. I don't know whether maybe they would have been perfectly nice to me. I have no idea. But it felt like there was a lot of hatred coming at me. And then I really got what it feels like. And I, that's, I thought, I don't want to do that to anybody. I don't want to do that. And that, that's the kind of thing. I, I mean, I'm a hard nut to crack, maybe. It, it takes something like that to really 
get me. And um, so it's been helpful to, to remember that. Okay, so it's, it's the attachment. It's the locating myself in it and the, the attachment, the self-righteousness that are the problems. And many of us on the left suffer from these hindrances. So that's 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 why it was also useful to you know. Oh right, the way I feel about Amy Goodman, other people feel about. I don't know. I, I don't know that I don't want to say Glenn Beck is not a fair comparison, but you know somebody on Fox News that's sort of more reasonable than that. So um, it's just useful to me to remember because it helps me remember that people who disagree with me are it turns out they're also human beings. And I can let them be themselves and not set up this us them, not make a thing of them, not thingify them or their ideas. Because I'm not so sure that every idea that I hold is right. And yes, there's more in peace. But you know, the Buddha in the end sat by and watched his tribe get creamed. Absolutely, and that and it is what it is, and, and uh, what, what Vasubandhu in the end says, to just rest in mere concept. Stop trying to make it into something else. Stop disrespecting it. Just, when we say sometimes the hazy moon of enlightenment. <laughs> because you just, that's what you know, and if you, you know, if you live in uh, pure experience or pure emptiness or something, you're not being human. And you can't talk to anybody. They can't hear you. <laughs> so that's the point. We have to, you know, we have to decide. Okay, this is solid. You know, maybe it's not really solid, but you're going to hurt your toe if you walk into it. And so we all decide. Okay, we'll call this a lecture. So we. That's just where we. That's how we 
live in the world, but we, we don't have to hold on to it so much. And we don't have to, as, as there's a phrase that Rebus used, uh, called, we don't, we don't have to give it so much substance. Or I say, we don't have to signify it. So, just, you know, can it be like this instead of like this? Mm -hmm. We should stop, is that okay? I don't know what you say now. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.